Yeah, Gary. Yay, Gary. Let's give pretty classic Gary dropping your stuff around. Uh, one time years ago, Gary and I were at a Willow Creek Worship Arts Conference, and we had taken, a, there was another gentleman that was there with us, and um, for 45 minutes, Gary and I led the charge trying to find our car in a parking deck, literally. Um, we were in... It, in Chicago, and we were looking for the car and could not find it. So uh, I'm not surprised that you have dropped your music. I'm a little, I'm a little concerned for the last song because I don't see any music. And um, uh, yeah, let's just hold on one second. Um, Oceans. That's the last song. We. It's in there. Are you good? Yeah, it'll be there. Uh, find it. Because else she'll be there. Wait, there it is. Okay, good. Um, actually, I'm so glad you're here. Come, come. I need you to do me a favor. Uh, I ran out of time this morning, and uh, if you all out there notice that it's a little dirtier than normal, I had a good idea this morning, and uh, the school system has had a hard time finding custodians on Sunday morning to get up and come at 7:30. The gentleman that really wanted to do it is down with recovering from surgery. And so the school has not been able to find a custodian. And because I'm always about saving money, I thought it would be a good idea if I became the custodian this morning. And it went well for about 15 minutes, and then I broke their vacuum. And so uh, anyway, it's been a bit of a harried morning, and we're talking about finding a beach. My name's Andrea Smith. I'm the pastor here at West, and we're talking about going to the beach. It is the end of summer, and clap if you like to go to the beach. We live in a lake community, Lake Norman here, and so if you're worshiping with us online, we extend a very special and warm welcome to you. The lake here is beautiful, and people like to be on the water, so I'm not surprised that many of you'd like to go to the beach. So the beach is a spiritual metaphor for the next two weeks, today and two more weeks, about our soul and about our life. So with that being said, I ran out of time because I tried to fix the vacuum, and I needed a volunteer for a pedicure. So I need you. Um, I brought some, I forgot the water. That's shocking. But um, I just, I need a volunteer for a pedicure and you're up here and they're probably not going to be willing to do it. So could you come sit down and let me give you a pedicure for a few minutes? I'd really prefer not to do that. (laughs) Well, I probably prefer not to too because you... (laughs) You have tennis shoes on, and the whole worship arts team, I've asked y'all to dress beachy, you know, so we can have the theme. I appreciate that. Why do you have tennis shoes on? Because flip-flops, how many of you wear tennis shoes on the beach? I do. Like three people, okay. (laughs) Three people wear tennis shoes on the beach. Uh, Why do you have tennis shoes on? You know, I just, um, I like them. They're shiny, and... uh... I just have a thing. I'm, I'm just, I'm not really but a flip-flop But I asked y'all to wear guy. flip-flops. Do you have some flip-flops? I do have a pair of flip-flops, and I just came from South Florida. Everybody wears flip-flops, except for me, actually. I'm just, I'm just kind of, I'm not a big flip-flops. flip-flops kind of guy. You lived no. in South Florida for how long? Well, this time for three years. Okay, yeah. and um, you don't wear flip-flops? 
That's no. messed up. No. <laughs> I, I, I bet your feet actually have a beautiful aroma if you live in South Florida and you wear tennis shoes. Gary, uh, really, I mean, did you hear me say that the beach is a spiritual metaphor for our soul? So I really have, like, I hope this meaningful, powerful, spiritual point that I want to make in a little while, and it involves our feet. So I need a pedicure volunteer, and I don't have time. It's 1024. I don't have time to recruit somebody else. So plot down. Uh, really, all. really, I'm, I'm good. You know what? I'm good. I bet I know why. I bet you have that Morton's toe thing going on. Do y'all know what that is, Morton's toe? It's when the second toe is significantly longer than the first toe. I bet that's, you know what, wait, shh. Morton's toe, people, they are known to be, you know, the, the strong person in a relationship. And a, it's also known to be attributed to people with royalty. And you, King Gary, you know, no, I, could, I, I could see I, that. I, I, um, no, Morton's toe. Not Morton's toe. Mine are like, like they put a rule to it. I'm, I'm perfectly Okay. Good. You know what? I bet it's fungus foot fungus. I bet you've got some foot fungus and that's why you won't let me see your feet. I have, look at this, I have three minute petty peel. It's got some glycolic complex and this will help you with your foot fungus. Come over and we will get that, we'll get that solved. Um, it's, I'm good. I'm really, no foot fungus. No foot fungus? No foot fungus. Not even athlete's foot, nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, good. I'm good. <sighs> All right, well, I think I might know the end of the day what the problem is. Could you just come step in the light just a little? Face the people. Um, your legs that lead into your feet, mm-hmm. they are thinner in stature. <laughs> you know, you have some very thin legs, and this is not sexual harassment. I'm not hitting on you in any way. But you have some thin legs, and I bet your feet might resemble this. <laughs> if your legs lead into your feet that are proportional to your legs, this is why you don't want to let me see your feet, isn't wow, it? I came back here on purpose, too. Uh, no, actually, it's not even that. All right, you, you want to know what it is? Yeah. I just have a thing about showing my feet in public. I don't know. It's just everybody, we all have our things, right? So Everybody's there's nothing wrong thing. with them? There's nothing wrong with my feet. I've even been told they're very attractive, if you want to be honest about it. But... I just am weird. I just, it's just a hang-up I have, and uh, it takes me out of my comfort zone. Okay. okay. So it, well, it's, it's just 1027 that. now. I'm running out of time. Uh, so I know. I well, hey, let to... me just say this, though. When you're doing the thing on neck and back massages as part of your thing, okay. I'm all in. I'll, okay. I'll call you. All right. Thank Gary for uh, sort uh, of being a willing participant uh, in the message today, even though I never got to where I wanted to get to with that. You know, Gary's got a thing about his feet. He is uncomfortable showing his feet. He doesn't want me to see them. There are many times in our lives that we are uncomfortable with circumstances and situations that we face. Those situations keep us from experiencing our joy. We are talking about finding your beach. That's a corona, a corona ad, and it's everywhere. You turn on the TV, you can find it on beach towels, 
it's a very popular marketing slogan right now. And I believe that's true for a reason. People enjoy going to the beach. Now, if we had lots more time, I would poll you and ask you, why do you like to go to the beach? When I've asked other people prior to this, some of the answers that I've heard are it's peaceful, the sound of the waves, you get to see the birds and, and watch them you know, dive down in the ocean and find their food. It's fun. You get to play games. Walking on the beach is soothing. There are lots of nice and good things that happen at the beach. So the beach is, is a positive place. What I want us to look at for just a little while this morning is comparing our soul, that part in us that drives us, that makes us who we are, comparing that to you know, the metaphor of find your beach. What if we find that place of inner happiness, of peace, of joy? What would happen in our lives if we connect with that and live out of that instead of just this hustle and bustle and you know the stuff that drags us down? in life. There is a modern-day theologian. His name is Richard Rohr, and he is a Franciscan priest. He has written many, many books on this thing called Our True Self, and he has coined the phrase, the two halves of life. So I want you to picture in your mind a bell curve. And Picture that bell curve as your own life. This morning, I just want you to think about yourself for a little while. Don't think about anybody else. Don't think about the community and all that kind of stuff. We're just going to wrestle with who we are. So picture a bell curve. And then when, when we are born into this thing called immaculate conception. We, we tend to attribute that phrase only to the Virgin Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ, but the real theological meaning of immaculate conception is conceived and born without blemish, without sin, without tarnish. So actually, if you study the Roman Catholic understanding of immaculate conception, it was not just Mary that was... Uh, Jesus was conceived in Immaculate Conception, but also Mary's mother as well. And so we really misunderstand that spiritual principle. Spiritual words, words that are contained in Scripture, they really are symbols and metaphors for how we understand something that is so much bigger than human words, our understanding of, of God, of love, of that love that abounds in this earth and is, is available to us. So Richard Rohr, this Franciscan priest, priest coined this, this term called one's true self or living into the first half of our life or the second half of our life. So today and for the next two weeks, we're going to be exploring those terms and finding out what they mean. I believe when we, when we latch on to those terms, when we understand them, and then when we let them change how we think, about our own lives and our own actions, that's when we can experience this life that is symbolic at the beach, you know, where we are happy and full of peace and full of joy. So this two halves of life that I told you about, you picture the bell curve, it isn't a chronological age. It's actually a spiritual age, something that is, is deep within us when our soul. So when we are in our first half of our lives, what we're doing is we're really trying to find our mark, our place, who we are, and, and levering it, leveraging it up against other people, other 
against society's standards and rules. So when we are in our first half, we basically are trying to establish, you know, our, our status, the, the ladder of life, climbing that, you know, career ladder, that corporate ladder, that personal goal ladder. And so that's the first half. And then these things happen in our lives called crossover points, crossover points. And that's what happens when we face suffering and tragedy and difficult situations and stumbling blocks on our, on our path and on our journey. And guess what? They happen to everyone. So many times in our lives, we try to avoid those stumbling blocks. But when we live into our true self, when we live into our true identity, that immaculate conception of who we were created to be, that's when we acknowledge that sometimes those stumbling blocks even though they are unfortunate and they cause us to grieve deep within our soul, it is a part of life. It's a, it's a necessary part of life. So as we experience those crossover points, those stumbling blocks in our journey, if we allow them, they will begin to change us. And it changes how we look at them. If we quit looking at them as, you know, they knock us down a few rungs on the ladder, and we start to look at them from an internal perspective. How are they shaping me into who I am? How are they changing me into who I am? Then that's when we are moving into the second half of our lives. That is when we are living into being who we were actually created to be. And that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. There is a passage of scripture, perhaps if you've been to a wedding, it's a rather well-known passage of scripture, and it is 1 Corinthians 13, and it talks about love. We attribute this passage to, you know, be the warm, fuzzy, ooh, ah, love, but that's not what Paul was talking about, you know, trying to tell people how to be married to one another. He was trying to help us understand God. So I want to read that that passage to you this morning, but I want to not stop with just the first part, you know, love is patient, love is kind. I want us to end with the second part of what Paul said, and it gives us a glimpse of what Richard Rohr and other modern day theologians understand as in living into who we were created to be by God and being at one with God and living into creating a soul that is filled with love. Listen to these words by Paul. If I give all that I possess to the floor and surrender my body to the flames, but if I have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But when there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I put away childish ways. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Desmond Tutu told Richard Rohr one time when he was in Africa visiting him, he said, you know, we are all like light bulbs. You and I, we are the light bulbs. We just have to stay plugged in. So this morning, I want us to think for just a second about what we are plugged into. We all have these two halves of our life. Our first half, where we're trying to establish who we are, you know, get a name for ourselves, if you want to coin that phrase. And then the other half, when we are living into our being, our soul being at one with love and all those things that the Apostle Paul just talked about. There's two words I want us to think about this morning. One is eros. It is known in the Greek as love, as energy, as positive energy. And that is that, is that peace and that, that perfection, that word eros. So we have two ways that we can feel and experience life, living into eros and that, that positivity, that positive energy. And then Thanatos, that is the opposite of eros. So you have eros, E-R-O-S, and then you have thanatos. Have you ever been around someone that is just, you just get this icky feeling when you're around them and they're just negative. You just, there's a vibe around them. Thanatos, that is what that word means. It is negative energy. It is opposing the eros, the the good. And so we all choose every moment of every day, truthfully, where we stand and abide and what we let fill our souls with eros or thanatos, positive energy, negative energy. Now, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're getting into mysticism and and all that, but we do have energy. Energy lives in and we live into it. It exists. It's real. It's our way. It's our feelings. We feel good. We feel happy. We feel at peace. We let those peaceful feelings, those happy feelings drive us, or we have feelings of mistrust, We have feelings of greed. We have feelings of ego. We have feelings of low self-esteem or insecurity. And we let that drive us. Now, when we move from the first half of life to the second half of life, that is when we start thinking about what makes us do what we do. And that's actually the end point that I want us to walk away with from today and for the next week be thinking about what's making you do what you do. Are you, are you living out of that eros or are you living out of the negative energy, the thanatos? And why? Why do you think the way you think? Why do we feel the way we deal, feel? Why did we do that action that we just did? It's a humbling lesson when we realize that we are living out of the Thanatos instead of the Eros. And for me personally, uh, it took another preacher convicting me of it. You know, us preachers, we're on this 
you know, there's, there is a preacher ladder, whether you know about it or not, and we compare ourselves to one another. There's a, there's a ladder, a corporate ladder that we try to climb and get this, you know, good reputation and all this kind of stuff. It, it's just like corporate America, just because we, you know, work in the field of religion does not make us any different than, than any things that you may experience in your own personal job or career. It was a couple of years after West had launched, and I've told you before about one of my mentors, Scott Osterberg. He is the pastor at New Story Mission Church in Winston-Salem. We help them with our Christmas Eve offering every year. He runs a homeless ministry in downtown Winston-Salem out of their church. They most recently have been able to move their Sunday morning worship experience to the North Carolina Children's Home that is there in Winston-Salem that houses orphans. And it's just, he is doing powerful ministry. I've known Scott for, years. He was actually on the board of ordained ministry when I went through the first time. And so now that our paths cross and we run in the new church start pastor circles, I've had a chance to get to know him. He's become one of my friends and one of the people that can actually convict me when, when I'm messing up. There are lots of those, but he's probably one of the biggest ones. A few years ago, you know, West had been on this trajectory and, you know, growing, 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 growing. You know, we were known as, you know, one of the most successful new church starts in our conference. And uh, especially one of the defining characteristics was that I'm a girl. Uh, There aren't many successful woman church planters. And so we were getting some notoriety about that. And you know what? I am guilty of having an ego and a self-esteem. So the more that articles were published about us or I'd been invited to speak a couple of places, you know, it, it kept getting a little bigger. And so I do try really hard to keep my ego in check. And sometimes my emails help me do that. Uh, you know, when, when folks share with me where I'm missing the boat, it's, it's okay. But, you know, my ego was getting to be a little too big. And then that was around the time that Scott had some health issues. And we were trying to figure out what was going on with that for a little while. We thought he had lymphoma. And he was in the hospital having some biopsies. And... You know, that was a really big leveling point for us in our life. That was one of those crossover points that was happening for us, for our children. And I'll never forget, it was a couple of months after all this had happened. And Osterberg called me one day just to catch up. And and I was telling him about, you know, what had happened in May and how we'd gone through the summer. And actually, in the West plans, we were getting ready to launch a new worship service either that fall or that spring called Crafted Conversations, where we actually, and please, if you're opposed to this, email me later, um, have a craft beer, you know, one beer, and have conversation around scripture and around theological ideas like this, positive energy, negative energy, because we exist to reach people that are not going to go to a traditional church, and craft beer is one of the hot things out right now, so why not? Let folks have one beer if they would like, and let's just have some, you know, roundtable discussions, not like the, the preacher on the stage giving this, you know, 
I hope, meaningful sermon. So we were getting ready to do that. And Osterberg asked me, he said, you know, how are you? How's West? Blah, blah, blah. So I was telling him about all that, you know, West was doing. And then he said, well, how are you? How's Andrea doing? And I said, oh, I'm good. I said, listen, it has been a crazy last three months. Uh, Scott got really sick. We didn't know what was going on. And, you know, he's better now. But we didn't, we didn't know, and so they were running some biopsies to try to figure out what was going on, and you know what? I never missed a Sunday. And now, West folks, I patted myself on the back for that. I never missed a Sunday in all that, even in the times that we were afraid and all that. I still delivered. And Scott said to me, and you're proud of that? And, you know, that deflated that ego pretty quick. I said, what do you mean? Am I proud of that? Yeah, I'm proud of that. I didn't need any vacation time. I just, I just, I didn't, I kept going. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. You know, people say that to me. I said, Andrea, why'd you do that? There are lots of people that you could have asked I'm sure people in West that would have been willing to step in and preach Amy Coles. Why did you do that? What motivated you to do that? And in that moment, I realized that the answer was the wrong one. The answer was my ego. That's a first half of life way of looking at things. You see, if, if I kept preaching, if I, you know, never missed a beat here, if I didn't admit to you that I am weak and fragile and sometimes life hurts me just as much as it hurts you, uh, I, di I didn't want you to know all that. I wanted to, you know, be the sage on the stage, the one that had it all together. I'm your spiritual leader or hopefully who you look to to do that, right? And he said, Andrea, you are being motivated by your ego, and by trying to stake your claim in this thing called life. And that's not what it's all about. The biggest takeaway from that lesson that I learned from Osterberg is to question my motives. So when I do things or make decisions now, I analyze them. I analyze, why am I doing this? Is it to make myself look better? Is it to make other people think more highly of me? Is it to create a better name for myself? If the answer is yes in any of those categories, then I hope I stop and reassess my decision. That's really all today's message is about what's motivating us to decide what we decide about our personal lives. I'd love to say that now I live over here in the second half, half of life all the time. You know, I don't think I do. I mess up far too often. But that's the beautiful thing about God, about love, about God's love. It's love that accepts us wherever we are in this journey. And as United Methodists, we define it as grace. 
We have this prevenient grace that is, is in us when we are born. And then that grace, there's something that pulls at us and tugs at us along our journey. And it leads and it pulls and it nudges until we have that aha moment that, wait, there is something more. There is something more to this thing called life than just trying to establish a name and a reputation for myself. Trying to get a bigger bank account or a retirement home or a second home. All these things that we put stature on, they don't really matter. If you look at this passage from Paul... Look at how it starts. If I give all I possess to the, to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but if I have not love, I have not nothing. It really all boils down to that idea of love. And is it that love, that eros, that positive place that moves in us and then moves us to decide things and to live into things maybe differently than we did before. This morning for the closing illustration, now as I walk completely off the stage, I wanted to show you this. We have a ladder. This is what we try to climb in life. Every one of us, when we are living in the first half of our life, this is what we make it about. Our reputation, all those things I mentioned before. And, you know, we take, we take steps, and don't get worried, I'm not going really high. Um, <laughs> I heard somebody go, whew. Um, we take steps as we go through our journey and you know, it's our hope, right, that, that we get to the top. And it's interesting, how do we define the top? Thomas Merton, a famous monk, said that we all try to climb ladders of success in our lives. We spend our whole lives trying to climb these ladders. Oftentimes, what happens when we get to the top is we realize that the ladder has been propped up against the wrong wall all along. What's your ladder and what wall is it propped on? Let us pray. Gracious God, you are a God that loves us and you are a God that shows us love through peace and hope and happiness and joy. This morning, I ask that you reveal to each of us here in this place and those of us worshiping online, show us who it is that you have created us to be. What is our own individual and unique blueprint that only we can live into? And then God, show us how. In Christ's name, the one who really did show us how to live. Amen. When Osterberg talked to me that day, he went on to say, you know, Andrea, you're not trying to prove anything to anyone. That's not what ministry is all about. So I think if I were you, I would just slow down a little. The world will not end if you guys don't start a new service this fall. And maybe you lead the people to start exploring what it means to grow deeper 
in their faith and in their own journeys. Now, a couple of years later, I look back and he was right. If I'd kept going and trying to prove a point and, you know, establish this name for myself, I probably wouldn't have stayed in ministry, actually, because I would have gotten really, really burned out. And that's pretty common, actually, among church planters. And so that lesson from him was a wise one. Rohr talks about us all living into our true self, our own little bit of heaven. Heaven is a state of being, a state of consciousness, and we know that it comes to full fruition when we leave this life and enter into the next. But it's not just about that. It's about here and now. And if we don't all live into our own little bit of heaven, then then it seems that our life has no meaning, and we end up creating for our own selves a state of being called hell. Live into and be in heaven, a place of joy, a place of love, and a place of peace. Go in peace. Amen.